You know, it almost always travels back to what are the bees pollinating this time of year, right? And that's really frustrating, but so beautiful. Gin is all about botanicals, right? It's all about flavors. How many botanicals have the bees gathered in their path? I have no idea. I just know what it tastes like. From Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies, it's Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. Today, we sit down with Ryan Christensen, president and head distiller at Caledonia Spirits, maker of the world-renowned Bar Hill Gin. Welcome. This is Sam Roach-Gerber. And Dave Bradbury. Recording from the Consolidated Communications Technology Hub in downtown Burlington, Vermont. Hi, Ryan. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, we are so excited to have you here. I'm, uh, it's only 11 a.m., so I'm going to stay away from the booze here, but uh, hopefully well, later. We, we're getting close to noon, so we'll see how it goes. Ryan, thanks for coming out, okay? This is uh, a really exciting time for us to hear your story today, and... Um, to maybe share some lessons learned uh, both during pandemic, right? Yeah. That's still going on, unfortunately, but also just sort of your origin and how you got to where you're at. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, hopefully this will be like a time capsule episode, you know, and we'll look back and oh, say, oh, we can oh, bury this that? with our soon-to-be empty <laughs> gin bottles. Exactly. <laughs> um, Ryan, let's, let's start super basic here. Tell us about Caledonia Spirits. What is it? Yeah, so Caledonia Spirits is a Vermont-based distillery. Uh, we're in Montpelier, Vermont, in our, our new distillery that we just opened about a year ago um, with no pandemic in sight when we opened that. So that's, that's been, been a fun challenge. But uh, we're focused on, on using um, you know, regional agricultural products and supporting farmers to bring high-quality craft spirits out to the, the world. Awesome. And what products do you have? So we make uh, – we're, we're best known for Bar Hill Gin – um, which is you know a gin sweetened with just a little bit of raw honey, um, and then we also make a barrel aged version of that, which is called Tomcat, and that's aged in a brand new American oak. So it's really, it's it's gin you know really designed for the bourbon drinker. And um, how long is it aged for? Aged about six months. Six months. Awesome. And then we also make a uh, vodka made from 100% raw honey. So you know most of the vodka in the world is actually made from you know corn and grains, and even though we all think it's made from potatoes, it's not. We chose to make it from pure raw honey, um, which is really you know due to our roots, which is you know we're founded by a beekeeper. I, to be honest, I didn't know you could make vodka out of pure honey. That's awesome. Yeah, I didn't either. Is it gluten free? It is. Yeah, all right. Because yeah. I've had a lot of my friends in the city have, have looked for their 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 spirits from non gluten sources because some you know some wisdom came down from the internet that said this is what they needed, and it's really been, uh, and you're on their list. So, yeah, great. it's great to be there. Um, have you always been an entrepreneur? Like, what's your background? How did you get into this, intentionally, or was it just happenstance? No, I've, I've always been an entrepreneur. I actually, like, can't remove that that part of me. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, I, I grew up, It's you a know, pre-existing condition. It's a pre-existing condition, Exactly. Um, you know, when I was in seventh grade, my dad quit his job and they bought this like almost out of business, small town hardware store. And like, it was just like my parents did not set the example of separating work-life balance. And I, I didn't really want them to. I actually really enjoyed hearing about kind of the, the struggles of a small town hardware store. That was like dinnertime conversation was how do we survive as a small town business? You know, a retail store in a town of 1300 when Home Depot and Lowe's are taking over the world. Um, but they bought this almost out of business, you know, hardware store. 
we joked when we counted the inventory when they bought it, there was more dust in the nail bins than nails in the nail bins. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what did my parents just buy here? Um, but it was amazing to see them kind of bring that life back to the community. You know, the whole community was like, you know, we need a hardware store. We don't want to drive to Montpelier or Barrie. We want to drive a mile down the road. And So what town was this? This is in Plainfield, Vermont. Great. And, you know, that just kind of shaped me, you know, that experience, seeing kind of the transformation and how business speaks to community. That's, that's something that I can't really take away. And uh, I think that's a lot of what we're doing now. And I think maybe that background in sort of saving a business, right, is, it makes you more resilient as someone who's starting something new. Yeah, I mean, the entrepreneur's journey is, is not going to be an easy one, yeah. right? I mean, if you walk in looking for the easy path, you're yeah, I mean, do you think you have that quick. defective gene or strand of DNA that makes you an entrepreneur? Because it isn't for everybody. I mean, I wouldn't want to be anything else. You know, I, I, I you know, I, I, I often joke, you know, I, I don't know if I'm, actually, I know I'm not the most skilled person on our team. I'm probably, there's probably not a job I haven't done within our business, but I probably couldn't do any of those jobs better than the person that's doing it today. You know, we've sort of grown to this place of this incredible team that, they take these little things that I used to do and they make it into something really refined. And now it's powerful. And I'm going, I don't think I could get that job if I applied for it. That's the mo- I think that's the most satisfying thing in the world is just, you know, they always say hire someone that's better than you at the thing you're hiring for. And But seeing that in action is, is such a different thing and it's, it's so inspiring. And that's when you know, I think you're really building something important. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the... You know, hopefully my team's not listening to this, but, you know, the reality is that like, we, we embody this sort of idea of, like, lifetime learners. You know, we are students every day that we show up to work, but the reality is I'm learning from them much more than I'm teaching anybody. You know, there's just this, this sort of conversation. You know, if, if you let leaders lead and then you kind of listen to them, it's the only way I'm going to have a voice is if I let somebody step in first. You know, because they're really, truly the experts in the field. Totally. That's really great. So, Ryan, one of the things that you had mentioned was that, you know, Caledonia was started by a beekeeper. Can you tell us about your partnership with Todd Hardy and sort of how you got started? Yeah, so Todd is, is a lifelong beekeeper. He's, he's had this, you know, incredible background, keeping bees, taking care of bees, um, really teaching the world about the importance of raw honey, you know, why we, we don't heat honey, we don't pasteurize honey, we keep it raw, and that's where all the, the flavor is, the health benefits. Um, Todd spent a long time, you know, getting Whole Foods to bring in raw honey. I mean, really kind of changing the world as we know it. Um, let me just adjust my mask here for a second. But, you know, just, just really like educating people on the importance of this. And um, as that evolved, he eventually sold that company, the, the apiary. And um, he had just recently launched a meadery, you know, honey winery. And he decided to bring that to Hardwick, Vermont, which is Hardwick is, is really an amazing entrepreneurial town. And he was working for a few years with the meadery, um, and then he decided to diversify into distilled spirits. And he had found, you know, some, some consultants in the area that had supported him and, and sort of had, like, things kind of almost moving with spirits. And I met Todd, and I was, um, I was owning and operating my homebrewing store, a store called Local Potion, which I opened in Plainfield. Um, I was looking to transition into commercial brewing. I'm really a beer brewer by background. Um, but I met Todd and, and just saw his vision for agriculture. His whole kind of mission was to employ people and to support farmers and beekeepers. And it was really kind of fascinating. You know, you think, you know, there's so many brewers in the state of Vermont. Um, there's so much beer in the state of Vermont. I mean, we're really lucky to have it all. I was sort of getting cold feet on my, my um, 
my brewery business plan. And meanwhile, I meet this guy, Todd, who's starting this distillery, needs somebody to work in the winery to help with fermentation, and would love to get this distillery off the ground. And I said, there's so much opportunity here. And as I got to know Todd, I got to know more and more about the importance of, you know, the role of a distiller in a community. You know, the reality that distillation is really an agricultural process, right? It's really, it's like farmers need a distiller like they need a tractor, right? If you've got a big crop of apples, you know, the price just comes down on the apples, right? So farmers don't get rich when you have a big bumper crop of apples. The next year you have a small crop and maybe the price goes up, but they don't get rich that year either, right? Farmers don't really ever get to make any money because the market is constantly working against them. Um, but distilling was suddenly this opportunity to take raw honey, rye, you know, all these agricultural products that we can actually produce around here and give it shelf life, right? Add value to it, give it stability, give it sort of an opportunity to sell in a place like New York City, right? We can't take a bushel of grain down to New York City and think we're going to get a lot of money for it. But if we make it into bourbon or we make it into brandy or we make it into, you know, raw honey gin, it's a, it's a different conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think your timing, entrepreneurship's about timing, right? When to get in and sometimes when to get out, but, but getting into that, that trend around people caring uh, on the source materials for what they're eating or drinking and, and coming out with this just absolutely awesome new, new set of products is, is pretty nifty. Um, can you tell us what Bees Week Bees Knees Week is, is, is about? Yeah, uh, Bees Knees Week. Well, first off, the Bees Knees, it's, it's a classic cocktail, um, super simple, gin, honey, lemon. Um, obviously, we work with a lot of honey and gin, um, and, and the cocktail is just incredibly refreshing, super easy to make. It's, it's you know, they call them the classics for a reason. I mean, you can't get rid of oh, these good. cocktails because they're so good. And the our our listeners is... can't see Sam leaving the room to go to the, uh, <laughs> the kitchen now. You hear like a little jingle in the background. Yeah, maybe another round. Yeah. Um, no, it's just a great cocktail. And we realized, you know, Bar Hill really is the best gin for this cocktail. And, um, but it actually, it, you know, it started, um, it started as sort of a neighborhood act- activation. We were, we were in Asbury Park, New Jersey. We were, we were doing sort of a meet the distiller event. And we went to a few accounts. And suddenly we landed at this, this bar. And the, 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 uh, the bartender made this great cocktail, actually garnished it with, with bee pollen and, and he, he asked us this, like, really pointed question. He's like, what are you guys doing for the bees? And, you know, we pay our farmers fair prices. We're getting some of the best honey in the world. I mean, we, we do a lot for the bees in our mind, but could we do more was sort of the takeaway message. And we were talking about could we do an event called Bees Knees Week where we raise money to support um, pollinator organizations. Um, this is one of those ideas, you know, when you that flight home, you know, you're on the airplane, you're going, that's like too powerful. We can't just do that in Asbury Park. We need to do this nationwide. So, you know, got back to Hardwick. This is back when the distillery was in Hardwick. And we were like, we got to swing hard on this. You know, this is really something powerful. Um, and there's other great campaigns out there like Negroni Week, you know, which is, a you know, Campari throws it. It's, it's an incredible, you know, week. They raise tons of money for nonprofits. But we decided we really want to serve the best quality cocktail um, and serve that cocktail in a way that celebrates the bees and, and more importantly, just kind of lets people know how important bees are, right? Yeah. Like every, everything that we eat, right? One third of every bite of food that we eat depends on a pollinator. So, you know, if you take away the bees from, from our food systems, you know, the grocery store looks a lot different. You know, our diets look a lot different. You know, we depend on these kind of invisible creatures so much that we don't even realize it. 
all of our products depend on it, but it goes far beyond Bar Hill. And it's a it's a canary in the coal mine for for climate change as well, right? And yeah, just what, what are happening. Um, Such a cool way to obviously raise money, but also just the awareness piece of it, right? I mean, like learning about what it is is just so important. And I think that educational piece of it, it helps with that sort of macro view of the agriculture that you're talking about. And I think that's a huge part about what makes Vermont producers special. Mm-hmm. And I think, that, you know, something that's really we've caught on to over the years is that, you know, when you're in Vermont, I think there's generally a reasonable level of appreciation for bees, pollinator. There needs to be more, but, but we're not completely unaware of it. But when you get into major cities, you know, it's, it's very, I say invisible because it's invisible. You know, we've, we've begun doing this work, um, you know, without COVID when we had restaurants. Um, but we like to bring observation beehives right into cocktail bars. And it's just like, you know, get people walking in the front door. They're there for a fancy dinner, and suddenly there's live bees right in front of them. And the reactions are incredible, right? People are like, are they going to sting me? You know, I mean, all the way to like, hey, I'm a lifelong beekeeper. I grew up with, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, vast, you know, the difference in response to that. But then they go sit at the bar, then they sit at the table, and they go, I want to learn more about that. And every time on the way out the door, they say, tell me more about these bees. That's brilliant. I mean, sitting at the bar, having a drink, Instead of looking at your phone like a zombie, you could just watch the bees do their thing. Yeah, totally. I know. That should just be like a thing that's in bars now. Now, <laughs> now I have a goal for November. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Um, you opened the Montpelier facility in the distillery last year. Was it really last year? It probably seems like a lifetime ago, 2019. Yeah, we opened June 20th, 2019. 2019. And that was from Hardwick? You went from Hardwick to there? Or was there an interim? Nope, Hardwick to, to Montpelier. Yeah. So tell us about this flagship location and, and what it was like to work with Montpelier and, and the community to, to bring this to, to the city. Uh, it was a huge project. You know, it, it, it's a project that began, um, well, really um, in 2014. Todd and I started you know, realizing that we were running out of space in Hardwick and um, you know, we started. We hired an architect to look at the the space in Hardwick, and there was basically no way to expand in Hardwick without losing like all of our access, and it was just going to create like you know a nightmare for our trucks. No employee parking, stills and fermenters are going to be on opposite sides of the buildings, and you know just think things weren't really going to work that well. It would it look like a Vermont farmhouse yeah. versus yeah, a, a not not great from a, yeah right. from a production standpoint. But we um, so we started searching that area, and that's you know that search continued. Um, and then right around 2017, um, we, we well, were skipping a step where, where um, I actually ended up buying the company from Todd in 2015. So, so Todd is, is at this point removed from the distillery, still very much involved in doing, doing his farming thing, growing grain. Um, but my new partner, who was a longtime consultant of ours, Minty, Minty and I went out on this search to find, um, find land or space. And... Um, we found this chunk of land, this this kind of just invisible little piece of land in Montpelier that um, I've driven by my whole life. I've, I've lived here my whole life, and it's it was just sort of this 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 part of Montpelier that I didn't even really know existed. It, it was right near Sabin's Pasture, which everybody seems to know what Sabin's Pasture is, but it was across the street on the other side of the railroad tracks, and it was just like, what is that land? And it sits up real high, and... Um, the reality was that it was the land where all of the granite sheds on that lane had been dumping granite debris for years. That's why it sat up so high. So it was an environmental nightmare at first. Um, but 
long story short, it became a huge project, a huge lift, team-wide project, um, but incredibly gratifying to think that we took this kind of underappreciated corner of the world that really needed a ton of environmental work. And, you know, not only did we clean up kind of the mess that was there, we, we put our flagship distillery there. And now you see, you know, when, when we're allowed to bring people inside our space and feel safe doing so, you know, you see just so much community activity right on the riverside. I mean, it's really it's beautiful. I mean, driving up route uh, two there, sometimes you'd look across and see, um, you know, events in the parking lot and, and, and just vibrancy. So it's an exciting space. We, we were, you know, we were really, you know, if, if not for the pandemic, boy, it would have been an exciting summer. <laughs> Still has been different kind of excitement. Um, well, that's that, something that is funny. We, we scheduled this podcast and then, um, I read the Vermont Business Growth Awards for 2020 and saw you at, I think, number four with 226.3% growth. What? That is amazing, first of all. Um, second of all, like, tell us about your secret. Like, how have you been able to grow so quickly? Yeah, I mean, that's, 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 uh, we, we love that award. That's, that, we're really proud of that. Um, we've actually taken the top spot in that award for the last two years. Um, just, just so we're clear, they look at that on a five-year basis. Yeah. So a lot, of, a lot of the other companies with smaller percentages are much bigger companies, yeah. so, to, to be fair. But, um, you know, we're incredibly honored and, and, you know, thrilled with our success. I mean, the reality, you know, is our growth percentages are large, but, you know, the amount of the gin business that we're accessing is, is tiny. You know, the whole spirits industry is dominated by a handful of companies, right? It, it, and that stems back to, like, prohibition, right? It was, it was made illegal to drink in the United States of America, and then they changed that back. And coming out of prohibition, it was, you know, a handful of companies that carried a medicinal license through prohibition that has led to the Goliaths that basically control the spirit store as we know it, right? So when you walk into a spirit store, 80% of that store is owned by the same companies, handful of companies that have said, well we should tell a story in gin. Well, we should tell a story in premium gin. Well, we should tell a story in vodka. We, you know, and it's really these conference room brands that you know, they tell some sort of made-up story, and then they go source the juice that's good enough to tell the story, and then they plug it in at the right price point, and then we all decide whether or not it's a good product. And it's really just marketing. You know? And we didn't know anything about this. right? When we started making gin, we had no idea what the spirits industry really looked like. I knew a little bit about... The beer industry, Todd knew a lot about the honey industry, and we decided to make gin. And suddenly, you know, as the years went on, we said, there are just a handful of companies that own all of this market share, and they're serving a product that doesn't actually solve anybody's problems, right? It doesn't actually make anybody happy, and it's not worth telling your friends about. Meanwhile, we've got gin in our backyard that we can't stop bragging to our neighbors about, hey, what do you think? Is this good? And they're telling their neighbors, and this thing is kind of growing in this sort of, you know, organic way at these growth rates that are, quite frankly, keep me in the distillery all hours of the evening, you know, trying to make more gin. And it's just like a really exciting moment. And, but the reality is that we've always just stuck with that kind of share it with your neighbors, introduce it at the farmer's market. And so this industry that is just dominated by all the things that you think, right? It's like, you know, box tickets to the Celtics game and it's, you know, cigars and it's pay to play and it's all these things We've just been handing out raw honey, 
right? We've just been saying, try <laughs> the wrong. You're not handing out like little trinkets and golf towels and umbrellas. And- no, we can't really play those games. But what we can do is, is make sure that we're taking care of our farmers, putting it into the quality of the gin, and then making sure that everywhere we go, people get to try the raw honey. Because that's the secret, right? That's the secret sauce is high-quality raw materials. Yeah. Can, can you actually talk a little bit about, like, you know, what sets apart your gin from other gins? Like, what, it, you said raw honey, but, what, like, what does that in the process look like? Yeah, you know, I mean, this, this comes from many years of us kind of, you know, iterating with, with Bar Hill and different honeys and different flavors. But the reality is there's, there's something very mysterious about the bees travel, right? We're just not going to know everything. And that's, that's part of the beauty. I always say distillation is really simple, but honey is very complex, right? So as we get into like filtration issues, as we get into, you know, really any sort of product quality issue almost always travels back to the farm. You know, it almost always travels back to what are the bees pollinating this time of year, right? And that's really frustrating, but so beautiful, right? It's like this, this like that's, that's what makes the job really fun. So cool. Right. There's an alchemy to it, right? It's it's pretty nifty. Yeah, I mean, in science can tell us a lot, you know, when you get into distillation, but the reality is the bees are not going to tell us all of the secrets of producing the honey. Um, but gin is all about botanicals, right? It's all about flavor. So when you think about a lot of the, the conference room brands are telling stories about this many botanicals, 18 botanicals, 25 botanicals, you know, how, it's countless. How, how many botanicals have the bees gathered in their path? Right. <laughs> I have no idea. I just know what it tastes like. It's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I love it. It's so well in this age of transparency and authentic stories and caring about what we ingest. Um, it, it really resonates. Can we talk about your, your team and your employees? How many folks are working there today and maybe how many were there pre-COVID? And Yeah, so we, uh, uh, we're, we're just under about 50 full-time uh, equivalents. Um, you know, we, we have, we have hired more and more people as we've grown. I think last year with a lot to do with the the opening of the facility and bringing on the bar team, but we hired 25 people last year alone. Um, so that's been quite a learning process of, of team building, um, through code. We do have some folks furloughed right now. Um, we only had to make four layoffs. We wanted to make zero layoffs. We worked really hard to that. Um, but with the restaurants gone, it's, you know, we have, we have a lot of folks on the team that are purely focused on restaurants. So while we had to make four layoffs, that was truly one of the hardest things we've had to do. Um, we've hired four or more new employees since then. So, you know, total team size has not, um, not gone down through this pandemic, which again, we're, we're proud of that, but we're also looking every day saying, you know, something's got to give, it's got to get a little easier than it is now. And can we talk about um, pandemic hits, right? Your business changes. So just describe that experience and what happened and, and how you responded. Yeah. Um, so March, right? It, it becomes March, which came on us very quickly. Um, we clearly had to shut down the front of house. You know, we clearly, yeah, everybody did, but we, we made the decision before it was mandated um, just, just because we had to. Um, at the same time, you know, we just opened this new distillery. We're less than a year in this huge overhead increase, and you know, quite honestly, our 
our loan payments hadn't even gone to full payments yet. We were still paying interest only on the construction loan. So the same month that we shut down, we went to full loan payments on our new overhead. Of course. You can't make that up. (laughs) I don't think I slept in the month of March, um, nor did probably anybody on our team. You know, we're, we're... it was scary. I mean, you know, like I'm not going to sugarcoat it. We, we were not certain that we'd come through this, right? You know, it's just you couldn't pick a worse time to take on a, a huge leap of overhead. Um, but we've got like the most resilient team ever. I, 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 I wholeheartedly mean that. And um, so we just just talked. You know, we just got on the phone, Zoom, whatever, and said like we got we to gotta pull this. We got to, one, keep this team. We got to keep this team glued together because this is a special team of people. Um, and two, we got to figure out something that's going to keep us together. Um, and hand sanitizer became kind of the obvious go-to for distillers. Um, you know, we had the FDA and the TTB moving at light speed, which is ridiculous. That never happens, <laughs> right. um, not even with something like a label change. Um, so seeing those two organizations move at light speed and talk to one another was, I mean, clearly it, it, we had to do something there. So um, I... I you know, pulled in the leadership team, and, and I said, I think we need to do something radical, and we need to make 20,000 gallons of hand sanitizer. And to be honest, I picked that number out of thin air. It was How big, many of these little plastic teddy bears is 20,000 gallons? Like, uh, well, we, we ended up in all producing about 800,000 bottles of hand sanitizer oh, wow. by the end of it. So I, I, we, we, we built a plan because um, it, it all came down to sourcing materials, right? That was the, you know, we needed, like, you know, a ton of ethanol, which we do have our giant column still named Phyllis, which is a beastly piece of equipment that can produce it. So that was kind of the trick up our sleeve was worst case scenario, we'll make it ourselves. Um, but that's a big number. We've never made that much gin in that period of time. But we needed bottles, glycerin, you know, bitrix. I mean, all these things we've never worked with before. Um, and some of those things are just like, you know, we don't have the capability to bottle that amount of spirits. We've never put out that many bottles of gin in an entire year. Um, so we called on Runamuck Maple, you know, Eric Sorkin and team, and said, you guys have a really impressive bottling line. Um, we knew we had Phyllis. We knew we could distill high-proof ethanol, but we didn't have the fermentation capacity. So we called Aquavite, Jeff Weber, and he said, I've got a bunch of alcohol that has come out of my kombucha. It's 130 proof. I said, we can feed 130 proof and bring it to 190 really, really quickly with Phyllis. So it was sort of like just band-aiding all these companies together. And then Farrell Distributing got involved. And Farrell said, we got a bunch of beer that's not going to the restaurants. It's going to go bad. So the beer ended up going to Aquavite. Jeff and team stripped the alcohol out of that. Then they trucked it down to us. We used the Citizen Cider truck, of course, uh, to, you know, Polish off this Vermont story. This is, and, I'm going to cry. I love and it. brought it to our distillery. We distilled it there. We made the bulk sanitizer, and then we shipped it up to Eric and the Runamuck team, and they packaged it. And, you know, and we had our whole sales team. The little honey bear, this is like the value of a team. Nobody on our supply chain teams would have said, let's buy a little honey bear, right? And plastic materials were gone. There was no bottles to put hand sanitizer right, the scarcity of all this stuff. In. Yeah. But Amy Dunkey from our sales team, who was you know, not out in market selling gin, she's like, we, we tasked our sales team with call every plastics manufacturer in the country. And I don't care if you all call the same company, just, just keep calling. And Amy said, I found nothing except this adorable little honey bear. And of course, she's a spirit salesperson. And we like, all, oh my God. All of it, we just looked around the, well, it wasn't a table, it was a Zoom meeting, but we all said, I think that might work. And so we bought 40,000 of those on the first purchase. We filled them up, they were gone. 
and then we just kept buying any any materials we could find. I think what was really impressive to me too is just the speed. Like the uh, the your hand hand sanitizer was definitely the first one I saw come on the market. Of like there was that mad dash to buy it all, and then you couldn't find hand sanitizer anywhere, and then yours appeared. So it was like the speed with however quickly, especially because there was what four or five companies involved in that. Like that's. Yeah, how many phenomenal. weeks did it take from from doors closed at the distillery to getting the, the bottles out there? Uh, I think it took us about 30 days. 30 days? Yeah. Amazing. And, yeah. But that felt like forever. I mean, yeah. it was like, our you know, we also took our bar team and made them into like a hand sanitizer logistics team. We called them the clean hands team. And so we had every bartender that worked for us, like building Excel spreadsheets to track orders and this was like, if we had known, we would have bought some sort of software or something. Okay. Instead, we built it all on Google Drive, and suddenly you've got 1,500 rows in the spreadsheet, and customers are saying, I never got my gallon of hand. You know, we're right. going, right. this is not built for this, you know. But, you know, again, resilience just just kind of pulled us through. And, and having team members that, you know, could easily have said, listen, I didn't sign up for this, are saying, let's figure it out. Like, that's... And they're all still with us, right? right? We're on the other side. We're making cocktails again, yeah. you know? So there's this, like, resilience and bonding that happened through that. Like, there were tears, right? It was hard. It was definitely hard on every single member of our team. Yeah. But now it's September. You know, now it's almost Bees Knees Week. And we're saying, let's serve some cocktails. We're pretty good at that. Yeah, awesome. That was we so We all could exciting. use a cocktail. Um, I just, what a story about just Vermont community. And, and, and employers and businesses just sort of holding up their hand, reaching out and coming together. Are you still going to produce this as an ongoing product line or was this sort of a moment in time thing? We don't want to. You know, I mean, we will. You know, if the world needs hand sanitizer, sign us up. But um, that's not what we're good at. Okay. You know, it's, it's where we're really, we, we, we'd like to be using Phyllis to make vodka. You know, that's, that's really what Phyllis is designed for. Love that. And, you know, outside of the, the sort of COVID um, world, you talked about your loan payments, but can you talk a little bit about uh, maybe since you bought the company and how you financed it? Yeah, happily. Um, so, you know, I met Todd. Todd had done a lot of work for Caledonia Spirits long before I came about. You know, he, he'd been really working, you know, the winery and distillery weren't that separated, right? They're two separate, you know, legal entities, but it was really one, one space. And um, when I met Todd, one of the first things I did was, you know, I said, Todd, I'm really interested in, in working here and working for you, um, but I'm not interested in the winery. It's really got to be an either or, and I'm fascinated by spirits. And and I, I thought that would be sort of the, you know, okay, see your way to the door. Um, but he said, great, manage the shutdown of the winery. Let's get the distillery operational and let's, let's get some, you know, products to market and some revenue coming in, which... That was exciting, right? The the idea, you know, I mean, he trusted me right out of the gate. That that was just such a compliment to me, but also like kind of a big gulp moment of, uh oh, what did I just sign up for? I got to figure this out. Um, but Todd had years into this, you know, he had years of you know his investment of time and energy and and you know, whereas I'm I'm just coming into it. I'm really excited about it. I have so much to learn um, around like. 2012, 2013, 2014, it's just really rapid growth with tiny little stills and undersized equipment. And Todd's just driving all around the country with, you know, this, this Mercury station wagon. We called it Mom's Red Car. And his mom <laughs> left it to him. 
And, you know, we're just packing mom's red car to the gills and literally until, like, the wheels rub. We'd, we'd, ru- we'd pack it until, you know, we couldn't fit another case of gin, and then we'd close the door with the window down. We'd shove one more in with a clipboard that said, Todd, take this out before you open the door. And then he'd just drive to Brooklyn. Amazing. Right? He'd, just, he'd just go and take it to a distributor. And, and the distributors would be like, why don't you use a truck? Why don't you ship this? And he'd say, well, the truckers aren't going to stop at every restaurant along the way and try to introduce them to Bar Hill. It's just more efficient. And he'd drive through the night. And so, of course, I'm at the distillery saying, what do you mean they took it all? And I'm you know, making another distillation. So, you know, we go from one distillation a week to 15 a week. And my point here is that it was this incredible momentum, but also kind of exhausting, right? And around 2015, 2016, Todd was really deciding he wanted to be back at the farm, right? He really wanted to be, you know, that's where his roots were. Um, So he just let me know that he was, he was going to try to figure out a way to kind of transition and, and just for clarity, Todd hasn't slowed down at all. He's the hardest working person. He's completely set the pace for us. Um, So I put together a business plan. Luckily I had my brewery business plan that was a little bit dusty, but still fairly relevant. Um, I needed some investors. Um, I had a couple of those folks, which, you know, for any entrepreneurs listening, there's a lot of value in having your own investors, you know, just anybody that's, that's, you know, willing to kind of be the first brave one to take a bite mm-hmm. out of the apple. Um, it's kind of that herd mentality thing. And um, so I took that plan and I met some other folks and I did some networking. And, um, and you know, the person who was my first phone call was this consultant we were working with, uh, Minty Conant. She was the, the um, consultant that came through NCIC, um, which is an incredible northern Vermont Great focus. resource up there, amazing. Northern Community Investment Corp. Yep. They are amazing. Um, <clears throat> so we had a, a grant that brought Minty in to help Todd and I, neither of us really wanting to focus on like, you know, an income statement. You know, I was, I'm in the distillery, he's on the road, and we're sort of just picking up the pieces. Minty really kind of let us know that we need to be more serious about that. But uh, she was my first call, and I said, Todd just told me he'd like to sell the company to me. I think I know how to figure this out, but I don't really know how to figure this out. And the reality was I had no idea how to figure it out. And Minty was just like, you'll figure it out. You know, let me know how I can help. You should do it. You should absolutely do it. And it was sort of that confidence in her voice was like, okay, I needed to hear that. Let's get to work. Um, but then she became a partner, you know, and she and I now own the company together. We have some additional outside investors that have been incredible resources to us. Um, and we've done an investment round since then. Um, but you know, it's that lifetime student thing. You know, it's, it's just when you think you're just thinking about botanicals, you're thinking about you know, financing and bank debt and, and all those wonderful things and how they come together. That's really, really awesome. Um, and there's benefit to have different partners too. You learn, like you said, different things, strengths, weaknesses. Have you had any mentors that have been really important to you as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I mean, everybody I just mentioned, you know, Todd, Minty, I mean, these people are so um, crucial, as well as, you know, my folks. Um, but, you know, more recently, um, a, a partner of ours is a guy named TJ Whalen. Um, oh, yeah, we know who, TJ. TJ. <clears throat> He's Fresh incredible. Fresh Tracks Capital. Yeah. Fresh Tracks, yeah, um, Carn Cross. Um, TJ's just been, you know, I am not a marketer. I, I never dreamed of being, you know, my favorite labels are the ones that came off like an inkjet printer, right? And... Um, TJ's really helped us kind of, you know, think critically about what we're doing as, as marketers and, and, and really sort of given me good nudges of when we should think about bringing on more talented folks to help us with this. And um, so he's been an incredible resource. Um, 
You know, and then I'm also just just captivated by, you know, folks like Yvonne Srinar, you know, Patagonia. You know, how does a brand like that kind of, you know, travel the world of growth and keep their, like, authentic kind of feel and, you know, just, just convey this is a high-quality product no matter how big or small this company is. When you're buying a product from Yvonne Srinar, you know it's going to be high-quality. And I think that's a hard thing to do, and I think it's a really important thing to do. Especially as you scale, right? You know, it's you can't hold every single bottle in your hands before it goes out anymore, right? So having that team in place is a big part of that. But just, you know, having the vision, too, is, mm-hmm. is just huge. Um, looking back from where you are now, is there anything that jumps out on you as what you're most proud of, of what you've built? It's, I mean, the team. You know, I mean, that, that, that it just, like, there'd be nothing, you know, without a team of people that are just, we're, we're just aligned. You know, there's just a group of people that we show up to work and we're all excited to be there. And, you know, that's kind of, I don't think I could do that over again and it would come out as good as it did, right? I think that there, there's like, there's thought, there's sleepless nights, there's searching, but there's got to be some serious luck there. Right. It's, it's just like, how, how does it actually come together like this? And uh, yeah, you know, it's worked well. It's awesome. And I mean, the sort of flip side of that is any any huge mistakes or any big sort of moments where you, you know, had a little bit of a whoopsie <laughs> that you had to go back and sort of fix. Yeah, probably like three today. You know, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> like, you know, there's there's. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't really like fear mistakes. You know, I, I, I mean, even like just, just with the raw honey and sort of like topics like filtration, right? There's, there's just, there's so many mistakes, right? We make so many mistakes. A lot of good gin goes down the drain and that's a really sad thing to see. Um, but then we figure out why, like what went wrong is usually this like tunnel of learning that, you know, did we sign up for this? Do we have time for this? Did we schedule it? I don't know, we're halfway down the tunnel. You want to turn back now? You know, and, and usually we end up learning about whatever caused the problem, what is the root cause of this, and usually we come out on the other side like better at marketing gin, right? Because yeah. we're, you know, knowledge is power. Do, do you have a second spin for this gin? I, I go back to Ben and Jerry's used to have a little cooler of like, oh, we got too much Heath bar in this. So just, yeah, the, the, yeah, we could talk about this off air just in case, like yeah, wink, the, wink or something. Yeah, right. The, the oops bucket. We'll talk about the oops bucket later. <laughs> um, anything our listeners can do to help support the company in this pandemic? I mean. And beyond. A, outside of Bar Hill, just the industry in general. I mean, you know, and that, that stems beyond distillers. But, you know, anybody serving curbside cocktails they're doing it out of necessity right now. And the great realization is that curbside cocktails are awesome, right? You can have great cocktails in your backyard. We didn't know that. We just knew we had to do it. Um, but our bar team has been so creative, so incredible, and in just, just saying which of these are going to go home and work really well, which of these we probably shouldn't send home. Um, but I'm sure any other distillery is you know, fighting the same battles. I mean, we've all got the loan payments to make, and we can't let people inside the doors. Um, but that extends on, you know, restaurants. I mean, you know, restaurants are the hub of every community, right? It's like, it's where we all come together. That's where we all meet. That's where we break bread. That's where we do all these things that are so kind of vital to community. And right now, a restaurant owner is saying, how am I going to make ends meet? You know, we, we have our national business, which we're so thankful for. Um, 
So our front of house is just a, a leg of the stool. It's a really important one to us. But for the restaurant, that's 100% of it. You know, right. and, and those restaurants are our customers. You know, those are the folks that we've, they've helped us build our business, right? That's, that's who has kind of helped Bar Hill get the name out. It's the bartender's introduction to the person on the other side of the bar that's given us kind of the street credit we needed to, to actually sell a bottle in the liquor store. Right. So just looking ahead, what's next for Caledonia? What, what are you excited about in the future? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited. I got to make sure I don't pick the wrong battle here, but I'm excited that there's so many um, new disruptive gins coming to the American market right now, and they're very shiny, and they have huge marketing budgets. They have Ryan Reynolds, right? There's just like, there's just a lot of stuff happening, color-changing gins. There's all these things that are happening that are going to drive a lot of people to the gin aisle, which I'm excited about that, because gin is, it's, it's an amazing spirit. You know, when you think about the volume of vodka that Americans drink. Nothing against vodka. I'm really proud of the vodka we make, but we all drink vodka because of great marketing that happened in the 60s, yeah. right? It's, it's vodka leaves you breathless, right? It, 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 what that means is it's flavorless, odorless, neutral, right? It, and, and, and actually, we can tell you've been drinking, right? Like the people just heard that as, oh my gosh, I can I can drink. go to lunch and have my, my cocktails. And well, right, instead of one gin martini, for some reason, we thought we could have two vodka martinis. Well. You can have two gin martinis if you want to, but you know the, the the point is, gin is really the exciting, neutral spirit, right? It's the botanicals that make it exciting, and I think America is about to realize that. It feels I thought they were going to realize this when I started to realize it, you know, nine years ago, but I think it's happening now, thanks to the influence of celebrities and and you know, the Diageos of the world kind of focusing, and we're we're sort of saying, great. You know, bring it on. Yeah. Bring more people into the aisle because we, we, we just hope we get the opportunity to share what we're doing. You well, know that you have to now make a, like, the other Ryan T-shirt, like, help support the other Ryan. You know, that's got to be part of your marketing campaign if they've got Ryan Reynolds. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Vermont's yeah. Ryan. Support Vermont's Ryan. The original Ryan. Yeah. Not funny Ryan. <laughs> I don't know. You've, I've got Pretty a couple funny. chuckles in. Pretty funny. Um, <laughs> working on it. Hey, we have to wrap this up, unfortunately. No. Because it's noon and it's time for a cocktail. Right, right, right. Um, I'm thirsty. <laughs> we ask everybody a magic wand question in the podcast. So you ready? I'm ready. Magic wand, superpowers. Uh, if you could change one thing about Vermont, what would you change? You're asking me this in 2020. So that's, <laughs> that's like risky terrain. Um, you know, I don't know. I guess, like, I grew up in Vermont. Um, I chose to live here and raise my family. So I, I didn't make that decision because it's a perfect place, right? I made that decision because it's such a small place. I, I actually feel like, you know, I and we all have a voice. And so I guess my list is probably pretty long. You know, there's things that, that, that do need to, to be fixed. Can I have two? Sure. Because one has to be mentioned, which is diversity. Um, that gets mentioned a lot on this podcast. I've heard it a lot. It, I think it needs to be said like 100 times more than it's said. Um, but we need more diversity in, in Vermont for, for all of us, I mean, for, for every single reason under the sun. Um, but there's one other thing that I, that I just want to mention that when I travel around the world with Bar Hill, there's this amazing kind of reaction to Vermont as a brand. And, you know, people look at it as like, 
Um, Matteo Keeler from Jasper Hill once, once said to me, people look at Vermont as a brand as like fresh air. And that's what it feels like. You're serving gin and they look at it like it's, it's fresh air because you're serving gin that came from this magical place called Vermont. And I'm incredibly proud of that. But the reality of Vermont or one, one piece of the reality of Vermont is that, you know, we have a lot of pollution in our rivers and it all funnels right to the lake, you know. And for some reason, we've got like this brand that says fresh air, but we can't, you know, and, and a lot of it starts at it's sort of agric- agricultural practice. And it seems to me like we as Vermonters should be able to solve this. And I'm not saying I know how, but you gave me a magic wand. So I'm going to say yeah, we can. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's the beauty. But like responsible agriculture is a real thing. And, you know, and Todd Hardy, you know, at, at, at Thornhill Farm, you know, he's, he's exercising that. He's making the hard decision to fallow his land and take a year off. And, you know, productivity is not number one. You know, health of the soil is number one. And I tend to think that that's actually in our control. We actually can do that. You know, we can stop spraying pesticides and making our dirt feel like pavement and actually let it stay on, on the land and not land in the lake. Um, but it seems to me like if we all get to take advantage of that kind of fresh air, you know, brand power that is real, we should, you know, kind of put our efforts right there and, and make sure that we're able to clean up the rivers and streams. Hell yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. I can get behind that. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. This has been Start Here with Sam and Dave, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. This series has been made possible by the Vermont Technology Council and Consolidated Communication. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe, write a review, and share. Thanks for listening. Let's go get a curbside drink from a restaurant or distiller or brew of choice this week and support our communities. Let's get back to work. Cheers.